Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Brent. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption. Uh, we're in a series um, going through the book of Matthew, uh, and today we're going to finish up chapter 15 of Matthew and look on into the first part of chapter 16. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and turn uh, to Matthew chapter 15, and we'll start at verse 29. So I'll give you guys a second to get there. It's a little bit of a long verse, so, uh, so bear with it. Uh, ver- chapter 15 is going to really set the stage and set the context for chapter 16. Uh, so, so stay in so that you kind of can see what's happening with the story as we move into chapter 16. In verse 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are you going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a great crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven basket full, uh, baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Chapter 16. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test them, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it is evening... When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch, and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, We, we, didn't, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing amongst yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not, yet, or do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Them, they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you guys will, uh, join me and let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word... um, it really meets us and it speaks to us and it changes us and it transforms us. 
I pray that this morning that the time that we, that we spend in your word, the time that we spend with one another, uh, the words that I say uh, would all point us to Jesus, that we would all draw near and close, uh, and that as we draw near and close, Lord, you would fill us up and you would send us out. Um, Father, may your word change us, may it shape us, have authority over us, uh, and we just pray uh, that to you be the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, there were a couple things I noticed the first time I'm reading through this. I typically like to, and this is kind of a good practice, I feel like, if you're going to study the Bible much or do reading on your own, it's really good to ask some questions, right? You go into the text and you can begin to ask some good questions. And so I asked some questions, uh, but before I asked the questions, I noticed something, and and I don't know why, it just always sticks out to me, but the disciples were really plain people. I mean, I don't know if you picked up on that. I mean, these were pretty plain guys. Um... I don't know how you miss uh, the whole Jesus talking about uh, the beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and you, you're like, hey, but like, we forgot to bring bread. And he's just like, no, no, no. Um, that's, that's hopeful to people like me uh, and many of us who wrestle with being plain and we wonder if we can really be used by God in community. We wonder if we can really be used by God in our families and in our neighborhoods. Uh, that's just really encouraging, Jesus' patience with his disciples and uh, leading them along. So, anyways, uh, the three questions uh, that I asked that I really want us to look through and explore this morning uh, really come from chapter 16. But the first question is, who were the Pharisees and Sadducees? I mean, obviously the big theme of this chapter, uh, or at least the portion of Scripture we read, is beware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? So I, I want to know first, who are the Pharisees, who are the Sadducees? My second question is, what is their yeast? What is the yeast that Jesus is talking about? He's obviously warning them about something that's worth them being aware of. You know, wh- what is it? Um, and then, how do we respond to this warning? What, what's an appropriate response to Jesus issuing this warning to his disciples? Um, so let's start uh, by the first, uh, looking at the first question. Who are the Pharisees? Who are the Sadducees? Um, I'm not sure if you know, but the Pharisees and Sadducees comprised of what they called the Sanhedrin, which would have been like the supreme Jewish ruling body uh, in Jerusalem. And these were two different parties uh, that had developed and formed uh, over time. Uh, if you know much about Israel's history, you know that uh, a few hundred years before this, they had been taken over by Alexander the Great and the Greeks. Um, that some stuff kind of happened there, but then the Maccabees rose up and they rebelled and they overthrew the Greek influence and they became their own independent nation again. Uh, but then shortly after that, Rome came in. And Rome is going to take over and Rome is going to occupy Israel. And if you know much about your Roman history, you know that whenever Rome went into a place, they took with it all things Rome. So they took with them... Uh, a very Hellenistic or Greco-Roman way of looking at life, looking at human nature, looking at um, sex, love, family, religion. And so they're going to take in with them all of these Roman or Greco-Roman ideas about these things. And if you know anything about how the Romans or the Greeks feel about this, you know that it is diametrically opposed to how the Jewish people feel about these things, right? Uh, so there's this response. Uh, there's two groups that really kind of form this uh, response to this occupation or this takeover. You have the Pharisees on the one hand. The Pharisees are going to be separatists. The Pharisees are going to do everything in their power to keep a distance from this. Uh, they, they, their primary goal is let's maintain our Jewish identity and our Jewish heritage. The Sadducees, on the other hand, uh, are going to more or less assimilate in many respects uh, 
into kind of this Roman uh, culture, and they're going to make good friends with the Roman government. So the Pharisees are literally separatists. The word Pharisee actually means separatists. These guys are going to be your textbook conservatives, right? Um, their goal was to maintain their heritage, keep the things the way they were, and they're going to do this through very strict legalism. The Pharisees adhered to both the written law and the oral uh, law, or the verbal law. Now, them and the Sadducees both agreed that this written law, the law of Moses, was, you know, scripture. But the Pharisees are going to hold to something a little bit further. Uh, they were so concerned about breaking this law of Moses that they created and held to a bunch of hedge laws or protective laws because they didn't even want to get close to breaking uh, the, the written law. And, and I mean, it's... I hope you pick up on it now, but they are going to resist. They are going to be the ones who are pushing for rebellion. They are resisting all things Greece, or all things Rome, uh, all things uh, Hellenists. Um, now, the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, are a political party, uh, like I said, that are going to get along pretty well uh, with the Roman government. They're going to be pretty much made up of a very wealthy, elite, educated, ruling class. Um, and they're going to you know, adopt... Um, if not, uh, if not adopt, they at least didn't demonstrate a, a whole lot of resistance to uh, the Roman way of thinking. Um, and pretty much the Sadducees are going to keep just what's needed to operate the temple, but they're not really going to go beyond that. They're, they're going to kind of pick and choose what they need in order to keep things going, uh, but they're not going to take uh, much more than that. So that's kind of an important setup. I, I feel like it's important to understand like, who is Jesus talking about, um, and, and that kind of throws the next question I have into a little bit of a, a, a storm of confusion uh, because this next war, or the warning that Jesus gives is beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, I, I, don't need to, I don't think you need an illustration about yeast. Most of you know what yeast is. Um, it goes, you know, you put it in different sorts of breads and uh, it makes it rise and grow. And you know that it really doesn't take a whole lot for yeast to, to spread throughout the whole dough and the whole batch. Uh, so essentially, when we talk about yeast, the question is, you know, what's the yeast or the leaven that Jesus is warning about? Yeast was pretty much a common symbol for evil during this time period. Uh, and, and it came with it the idea that a very little bit of this evil could have a very far-reaching and really bad effect, a, a horrible effect. So it's important for us to know that Jesus isn't just telling his disciples, hey, stay away, you know, from a whole lot of this stuff. You only need a little bit of it. Uh, he, he's actually saying... Uh, that even the smallest bit of this, uh, this yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, would spread throughout and ruin uh, the whole. Uh, essentially, Jesus is saying there's no place uh, for this. So what was the yeast? Uh, I mentioned before that these two groups um, were, were, had a lot of different cultural differences, but they also differed a lot theologically, and they definitely were on different pages politically. And so when Jesus, at the end, right there in verse 12, it says, and then they realized that they were, he was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that can actually be a little bit confusing, right? Because if you were to go and say, hey, today's modern conservatives, today's modern liberals, beware of their common teaching, you'd be like, hmm, I don't really know what that common teaching is. I mean, these guys were on opposite ends of the spectrum, um, and, and I mean, if it were the Pharisees, it would be really easy. If he said, beware of the, the leaven or the, the yeast of the Pharisees, we'd say, hey, Jesus is obviously talking about, be careful 
of the dangers of legalism, self-righteousness, uh, and judgmentalism. And if it were just the Sadducees, it would be easy. Hey, be careful. These guys don't hold to the right theology. They don't believe enough. They don't really want it to affect all of their life, right? They're too secular. They pick and choose which rules they want to believe or, or hold to, but nothing more. They are more concerned with maintaining good standing with Rome than they are with God. If it's either of these two, it's, it's pretty easy to say, hey, beware of this. And we could walk away and say, hey, Jesus said, be really careful about this, so you know, just don't do this. But that's not the case. So it kind of leaves us figuring out what is, what is their similarity? What is this common teaching, this common yeast? It had to be something beyond the actual doctrine of what they taught because they were different in their doctrine. It actually had to be something else. The two groups, although they're different, at many points of belief and practice find at one commonality. They find a commonality in their lack of single-hearted devotion to truth and to righteousness. It expresses itself in different ways. But hear this. Although different at many points, they both find their commonality in their lack of single-hearted devotion to truth and to righteousness. Both of these groups claimed to be devoted to truth and righteousness, the truth and righteousness of God, but the truth is they were really after their own power and their own control. They were after their own prominence and they were after their own glory and they were after their own righteousness. If you will, go ahead and open your Bible, to open it back up and go to Matthew chapter 23. I really want us to see what Jesus has to say about this kind of thing. And just a forewarning, uh, it's a little bit harsh, but I, I encourage you to go and read the entire chapter of 23. When I first started asking the question of, hey, what is this yeast? What is this yeast? What is this? I, I, this is where I was able to go and say, wow, this is not just like something Jesus is like, hey, be on the lookout for this, you know, be careful. He is warning, a serious, very serious warning to, the, to, to his disciples and to the crowd to, to be on lookout for this. And so this is why. Go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to just kind of pick up a couple different verses. The first verses I want us to read are 13 to 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make single proselyte, proselyte and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And flip over uh, to verse 25. Let's look at 25 to 28. Sorry, I turned too many pages. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Look down at verse 33. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, 
How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Then in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. Both of these guys are going to, both groups are going to be saying, hey, we're after real truth and real righteousness. But really they were after the extension of their own power, their own glory, and they did not want to be people who were in need of grace. They wanted to achieve those things through uh, their perfection, albeit different. The Pharisees cover up their pursuit of power and control by establishing rules that they can uphold. They will be good enough, they will do the right enough thing to get that, right? The Sadducees don't take the law so seriously. They're going to decide, like I said, which parts they're going to adopt, which parts they're going to leave. So the Sadducee seeks power through success, through education, and through culture. If you're a Pharisee, you read the Bible and you say, hey, I'm going to obey everything in it so that I can get everything that I want. So I can earn God's approval. In other words, I'll obey so that God owes me. If you're a Sadducee, you read the Bible and you say, ah, I'm going to decide for myself what to take from this. I'm going to decide what rules are actually important, what truth is actually important. Why? So that I can get what I want. Do you see both are just doing different things to both get what they want? More power, more glory, more through, through perfection. But the question is then, who, who is really God in this picture? Who is God? Their pursuit of these things are going to actually blind them. Why are they so hostile to Jesus? Why are they coming and testing him and questioning him? Because they were blinded. Their pursuit of these things had blinded them to actually see who Jesus really was. It's because God's sovereignty, God's glory, and God's grace were all being perfectly manifest in and through Jesus. And this is terribly offensive to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It threatens all of their life. Again, his sovereignty challenges the pursuit of control. His glory challenges their dreams of prominence and grandeur. And his grace challenges their overinflated view of themselves. And I would ask you to be honest with yourself. Those things actually offend us as well. Right? His sovereignty challenges our pursuit of power and control. And it forces us to come to grips with our own weaknesses. Yet if we come under it, It's what ultimately will free us and liberate us from crippling fear and anxiety. His glory challenges our dreams of prominence and grandeur. And it forces us to see how our pursuit of glory puts us at odds with him and puts us at odds with the people who are all around us. But when we come under that, it can actually give us real hope and something to truly live for. And his grace challenges our overinflated views of ourselves and forces us to come to the reality that we are the ones in need of a savior. You see, both of these groups were looking forward to a Messiah. Both believed they needed a savior, but they didn't realize that who they ultimately needed saving from was themselves. They thought, we're the good guy, and we need saving from the bad guy. They didn't realize that their greatest enemy, who they actually need saving from, was from their own sin. 
So what's our appropriate response? What's an appropriate response to this warning, to this danger, to this beware? Look out for this dangerous thing that will rob you and wreck you of all things that I am intending for you. Easy enough, right? Be careful. Watch out and avoid the yeast. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees. You know, make sure that you're seeking real truth and real righteousness, the truth of God, the righteousness of God, the glory of God, right? But there's a pretty significant problem to this. And you and I both know it's true. Because no matter how much we try to put it off, deep down we really want power and control because we believe that it could actually, like we could be good if we had all the power and all the control. Right? We live, we fight tooth and nail, we hate our neighbor for our own glory so that we can be the one who gets elevated and lifted up. Think about your relationships. Think about your last conflict. What did it boil down to? Was there a competition for glory? And grace, we don't want to need grace. Grace is the most offensive of them all. Because grace says, you need this. You don't have it. You can't do it. You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You need something that you can't get on your own. And that's absolutely, it absolutely opposes our American ideal. The American dream, it comes against that. It says you need something from somewhere else to get somewhere else. You can't do it in and of yourself. You know, one of the things about uh, preparing sermons, Ben and I have talked about this a couple times, and it's, it's been true. Uh, preparing for a sermon or preaching a sermon can be really challenging if, you, if you're letting it really, like, deal with you. If you're in the scriptures, if you're in seeking, like, God, it, it absolutely wrecks you. Because you're having to deal with all of these things that the scripture's like floating to the surface, right? So this week, uh, typically on sermon weeks, I'm like, all right, I got to do everything this week just perfect. I need to get good eight hours of sleep every night. I need to be exercising, going running in the morning uh, or doing some sort of exercise in the afternoon. I need to be eating healthy because I'm the pretty plain guy and I need the brain to be functioning as good as it can, right? I need everything to be going just right so that I can like mustered this up, right? So Monday morning at about 5.30, I'm sleeping, trying to get my eight hours. Hey, I'm going to get there. This is going to be a great week, right? So I'm sleeping. 5.30, I hear a little pitter-patter of feet running up the hall, and I'm like, this has got to be a dream. Like, Eden can't get out of her crib yet. Like, what's going on? And Kelly doesn't get up to work for like 6.15. I mean, I should be good. You know, like 5.30, I don't understand. So I like kind of open my eyes and look out the door, and Eden's just standing there looking in. Dada! I'm like, mm-mm, mm-mm. It is way too early. So at 5.30, I go out, and this real bad weather. I guess it was raining, it was real cold, real bad rain on uh, Monday morning. Uh, my mom usually keeps Eden for us on Mondays. Uh, and at about mm, 5.45, just because, you know, it needed to be a real good morning, my mom texts me and is like, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it today and keep Eden. And I'm like, hmm. All right, Monday's kind of like my go day. It's like I'm going to go in the office. I'm going like to work real hard to try to like do my, finish my studying and kind of get the main idea of what I'm going to say. And that did not happen. Kelly had to work. And so I was like, well, all right. You know, I tried to like, you know, I put my big boy pants on and just take it and be like, all right, you know, I'm going to push through. I'm going to make it. You know, look at me. I'm going to be real great uh, and just and do this. Um, but deep down, there was a real challenge uh, because... You know, as much as on the outside, I was like, oh, yeah, Kelly, don't worry about it. Go to work. Like, my insides were, like, knotted up. I was like, man, this is a 
mess up my whole week. And, I mean, I thought I was putting on a good front, but, like, Kelly left and was like, I mean, I was really worried. I thought you were going to, like, you know, be really upset and it was going to ruin your entire week and, and, and all of these things. Uh, but shortly after she left, uh, the Lord showed me that, like, he's sovereign, Right? As I'm like looking at this scripture, again, as I'm seeing this, I'm looking at the resistance that the Pharisees and Sadducees had. He's showing me that like in his sovereignty, he wasn't calling me on Monday to spend my day getting ready for the sermon, which is what I thought was the best way to serve him. He put an entirely different thing in front of my face. And I could resent his sovereignty and just be bitter and upset and tore up and anxious or fearful all day long. Or I could be like, all right, Lord, well, I'm just going to yield to you. I'm going to find joy in yielding to you. And it was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful day. I got to see that he wasn't leading me on Monday to prepare to preach and, and, and point all of us to Jesus. But he was, preparing, he, he was teaching me to, to come under his sovereignty and that he, he was calling me to show the love and the graciousness and the presence of Christ to my daughter. I think a lot of times we think, hey, you've got these big, uh, big ideas about like, what it needs to be or what it needs to look like. But really, he's just called us to be faithful in what he puts in front of us, what he brings up in, in our day. And that really frees us, if you think about it. Think about the last time you've had fear or anxiety really at work in you. Like, How would this change us? How would this free us and liberate us? And that kind of leads to the next thing because he showed me that I really wasn't concerned about his glory in that. Because if I was really concerned about his glory, I would have been totally okay with spending the day pointing my daughter to the glories of Jesus. But I was worried and concerned about my own glory, right? I wanted to do it all well enough so I could do this well enough. I mean, it gets nasty. I mean, if you take back that first layer, you'll see in all of us, we all wrestle for this power. We all wrestle for this glory, and we all want to be the ones who don't need the grace. But praise God that Jesus is full of grace and mercy. And me, standing up here, who this week wrestled with resisting his sovereignty, going after my own glory, he graciously walked beside me as a loving father and taught different. And that's good news because we could all probably sit and tell stories of our pursuit of our own glory, pursuit of our own power through perfection because we all want it. Deep down, if we're honest, when we talk about the appropriate response, we have to be honest and say it's not just good enough to respond to his warning. We have to realize that you and I, we are the Pharisee and we are the Sadducee. Go back to chapter 16 with me real quick, and let's look at verse 4. There's something really cool that's happening here. This is right after the Pharisees and Sadducees ask for a sign. And Jesus, this is what he says to them. It's chapter 16, verse 4. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, I'm just going to pull this up on the screen. You don't have to turn there, but there's a little bit more clarification because if you just read Matthew and you're going the sign of Jonah, you're like, what is he talking about? Uh, but Luke helps us. He clarifies. He goes a little bit further and says what Jesus says. In verse 30 of Luke 11, Jesus says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You may not see it, but Jesus' grace is manifest in this statement. He says, you are an adult. He issues a serious indictment, especially here in Luke 11. I don't know if you see it. He tells them the pagan Ninevites, not children of the promise, not heirs of the promise, they are going to rise up because they responded to God's message with repentance. They're going to rise up and sit in judgment over you, the religious leaders of Israel. If you know your Old Testament history, you know that that is an absolutely wild statement. That pagans would rise up and sit in judgment over the religious, over God's children. I mean, there's a pretty serious indictment there. There's no question about it. But he doesn't, notice that he doesn't just leave them with you adulterous and you, what is that, evil and adulterous generation? But he says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Even in his dealing with them, he still is going to show them. Rejected, ignored, pushed away, Jesus will still provide them with the sign of Jonah. But unlike Jonah, who reluctantly delivered God's message to the Ninevites, Jesus, full of love, will entirely, entirely and willingly walk into the suffering before him to deliver to those people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this message of God. While Jonah suffered under the wrath of God for his own disobedience, he was rescued from this ordeal and thereby brought the message of repentance to the pagans. Christ, Jesus, did not suffer God's wrath for his own disobedience, but he suffered God's wrath for the sins and the disobedience of his people. And he willingly took it upon himself. And that's good news for you and me. That's good news for the Jewish. It's good news for the Gentile. It is good news for all. Like Jonah, <clears throat> who entered into the belly of a well for three days and emerged with the message of God, Jesus sunk down into the belly of hell. And after three days will emerge, overthrowing sin and death to a glorious resurrection, thereby bringing the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God to all the world. Jesus is the better Jonah. And he calls us to repent. And he calls us to turn from the pursuit, our pursuit of our own power and to rest in his sovereignty. He calls us to repent and turn from the pursuit of our own glory and to seek first his glory, to seek first his kingdom. And he calls us to turn from our own performance, our own self-righteousness, whether it's through moralism or relativism, and to rest in his grace. Jesus the Redeemer has come so that Pharisees, Sadducees, and all other glory thieves would joyfully live for the glory of another, which is what we truly need. So as we enter into a time of response, I, really, I want to invite you uh, to really take a little bit of time and ask the Holy Spirit to really reveal some areas. If, if you see in your life, hey, I have a lot of fear, I have a lot of anxiety, I'm not at peace, like I'm upset all the time, I, you know, I'm, I have bad relationships with the people who are around me, and for some reason, wherever I go, you know, somebody else is always you know, the problem. Or if you wrestle with hating yourself because you know deep down you're not really good enough, um, that's all, that's all fruit. That's all evidence of us not trusting in these things and finding our worth and identity in these things. 
So as a body, as Redemption Church, let's take a little bit of time and let's ask the Spirit to really do the work in us and reveal to us what's really going on inside and where we can turn from what's not good for us and not good for people who are around us and turn to that which is better, it's liberating and freeing and it enables us to actually bring the message of hope to the people who are around us. Let's ask him to show us where we need to turn to repent and to teach us what it really means. See, when we always say when you repent, you're not just turning away from something. You're turning away from something and you're turning to something else. You're turning to something that's actually better. And so ask the Spirit to teach you to, how to turn from your own power and control to finding rest and peace in Christ and who he is and what he's done in his sovereignty. Turn from your own glory uh, and to really show you a life of what it looks like to pursue the glory of God and not your own. And ask him to teach you what it really means to be liberated and totally free as we rest in his peace. He offers all of those things. So I just invite you during this time, uh, we'll have uh, the band come back up. Uh, we'll have communion going on up here. You can come up the center aisle and you can go left or right and you can take the bread and you dip it in the wine or the juice. And by doing so, you are proclaiming that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We're about to get into next week Jesus asks Peter, uh, you know, or he asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. By coming up here and by taking that, we are agreeing with Peter. We are proclaiming that that's the truth, that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, if there's conflict that's ongoing, that's unresolved with brothers or sisters, or there are things going on that you need to really deal with, I would encourage you to stay where you are and like, really give those things over to the Lord and then come and take once you're free. Um, yeah, if you're not a believer, we don't want to make you feel weird or awkward, but we'd ask you to stay where you are for your sake. Uh, you, you, it would be uh, untrue for you to come up and say, hey, I believe these things about Jesus. Um, so we'll have a time of communion. It's a time of response for you to seek the Lord in prayer. There'll be people in the back uh, who will pray for you. They'll have land, lanyards on if you'd like to pray. Uh, and then we also have a giving basket in the back for the members of Redemption Church uh, where you could give uh, your tithe. So um, I'm going to pray if the band is going to come on up and take communion, uh, and then we'll move into this uh, time of response. Father, we confess that we want our own glory. We think that we would be the best if we had all the power and control, and we just want to do it perfectly. Uh, we just lay these things at the cross. Uh, we just thank you that you've crucified these things at the cross. You've been uh, buried. You took them with you into the belly of the earth. And three days later, you were resurrected. Uh, and you give us new hope and new life uh, in and through that. Pray that as we take uh, communion, as we watch one another proclaim your hope, that we would just be moved, uh, that we would just be drawn, uh, and that we would just be changed by you, Jesus. We pray these things uh, all in your name. Amen.